Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Amen. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Darden. Guys. All right. Hey. I noticed Jeremy was like standing over here facing that way. But, all right, we're going to make this work. Everybody doing okay? Cool. Me too. Um, So I want to start off by telling you, I gave a little warning on Facebook, but there's going to be, especially toward the end, some content uh, in this uh, sermon that might be... uh, Helpful, um, but also may not be conversations you're ready to have with kids. But uh, it, it's it, we're going to broach some of the topics of uh, marriage and surrounding issues. Uh, so um, that there's your there's your warning. Fill in blanks where you need to. Uh, this sermon, I will tell you, this sermon quickly turned into two sermons uh, that I did not try to squeeze into one. It's probably three sermons that I tried to squeeze into two. Uh, so we'll we'll get going with that. Um, uh, just so you know, it, it did not, I, this didn't come out, I didn't, I didn't write the sermon I set out to write, but it's okay. We're going to do technical, more technical stuff this week and more practical stuff next week. All right. So, and then Thanksgiving and then Advent. So you'll get to, you'll get to soak in this for a long time. Uh, June 21st, 1997, uh, I had just literally just like within a month graduated from college and uh, I was standing on this stage at this big, beautiful church in front of a couple hundred people in southwest Missouri, uh, half of which I knew, half of which I didn't. Um, and I was asked this question that I did not really understand at all. It became apparent quickly how much I didn't understand this. And I gave this assured, confident answer to that question uh, that I honestly had no business giving. <laughs> um, and shortly after answering that question with this profound and bold, I do, um, my 21-year-old, young, selfish, hormone-filled, brain-not-fully-developed self boarded an airplane with this woman who had just entered an agreement to make every effort to spend the rest of her life with me. Uh, We had received airline points and hotel points from my dad. Otherwise, we had no money at all. We had somebody's living room filled with gifts and enough Pyrex uh, that we would be able to take back and buy our first used washer and dryer. and we, we boarded this plane to Hawaii. We, we set immeasurable, unnecessary expectations right off the bat. Um, and so one day while we were in Hawaii, we decided to rent a car. And at 21, it's way more expensive to rent a car. Uh, and so we decided we would, we would rent a car on the island of Oahu. And just so you know, this is before cell phones Um, and before uh, GPS and any of that stuff. Um, 
And, and, and several years later, we would reflect on this, uh, some conversations that we had uncovered something that took place in each of our minds in this moment when we decided to rent a car that would lay a foundation for lots and lots of work and therapy in our marriage. Um, my beautiful new bride, upon getting into this Mustang convertible that we had rented, because why not? Um, and just, just for the sake of it, if you are on your honeymoon and you go to a really nice restaurant, don't order the cheapest thing on the menu. We had a beautiful view and nasty, I don't even know what it was. Um, but spend your money on the dinner, not the rental car. Anyway, she gets in and sits into this Mustang convertible, and she says, do you have any idea where you're going? And, and my response was, no, but this is an island. <laughs> How lost could we possibly get? See the ocean, veer left, right? Um, now, we made it through that day just fine, um, but those two questions would, would set a foundation uh, for a whole lot. For my wife, all of a sudden, this fear-stricken panic overtook her. Is he prepared for anything? This is his first opportunity, and what? He's not even ready. Is this the way the rest of my life is going to be? Will he protect me from really from anything? Is my life now more in danger? Will he be able to take care of me? Is this the man I'm supposed to trust my life with? And maybe, uh, God willing, our children one day? This is the guy who has no idea where he's going? This is not what I've signed up for. I've made a huge mistake. And in my mind, I operated the way I always operated. Figure it out. How, it, what's the worst that could happen? Right? This is like I do all the time. And I really hope she's not going to bug me about every little detail of every decision for the rest of my life. Like every little detail like, do you know where we are in this foreign land that neither of us knows? In my mind, I was like, let's just go. We'll have some fun. Maybe we'll find a private beach somewhere we can make out. Right? That's what guys think about. Um, what we have both learned in the last 24 and a half years since that moment is that marriage is something completely different than we both ever thought or ever knew. Um, it's good and it is very hard. It's good and it's hard. Uh, we've been doing the series lately for as far as the curse is found. And, and what we're going to get into, we're, we're looking right now at the creation, redemption, uh, creation, rebellion, redemption, and we're going to, after Advent, really begin to look at the covenants that God made with his people and start to see how God operates and the promises that he makes throughout time. But before we get there, we're looking at some of the foundational things that we take for granted in our world uh, and how the creation, rebellion, redemption narrative sets those up. We've looked at work, we've looked at rest, and now we're going to look at marriage, and we'll, we'll, within the realm of marriage, some other various aspects, uh, gender, sex, relationships on how those play out. I do want to tell you again that today's going to be a little more technical, 
What is marriage? What does it look like? What is it not? Uh, and then next week, we'll get to the practical when we look for all of us. How do we love and encourage one another, long-suffering, and how is that pressed specifically in marriage? So we're going to use the framework of creation, rebellion, redemption um, as we walk through this. Um, uh, I do want to say, if you are here today and you are single, whatever, however that, or if you're watching today and you're single, however that has carried itself out, whether you are young and single with aspirations of marriage, whether you're single again, uh, or whether you are potentially considering lifelong uh, single and, and celibacy, uh, that I hope and pray that this is helpful for you. Um, I will, and I do want to say that you are in no way whatsoever lesser than anyone else. Um, you are not incomplete. Uh, many of the struggles and hopes that you deal with are the, are the same as anybody else deals with, um, with maybe some different caveats. So I hope that this can be uh, helpful for you. Um, so I'm going to tackle this from more from an unusual place than I normally would. Uh, I'm going to use uh, Jesus' interaction with some of the Pharisees in Matthew 19 where Jesus is posed with a question. And it's a question about divorce. So what better way to start off this sermon on what marriage is than Jesus' question with divorce. So this is going to be in Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 12. Uh, when we went through the series on parables, you saw that Jesus and the Pharisees have a, a tense relationship with one another. Um, and notice the setup here for them to ask this question. It'll be on the screens behind you, uh, or you can turn there in your Bible. Matthew 19, 3 through 12. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce a man's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and, uh, and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7, the Pharisees said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? Send her away. And Jesus said back to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You can respond by saying, thanks be to God. I will say Jesus does go on from there. I, I thought about reading it, but we're not going to have time really to get into it about uh, uh, the issue of they say, well, is it better then to just not get married? And Jesus is like, that could be a calling or a decision to be a eunuch and, and the vocation of celibacy. We're going to hit that a little bit, but not nearly enough to, to open that up. So I'll just figure I'd say it to you and then not deal with it. Um, so uh, <clears throat> again, today is going to be a little bit more technical with some elements of, uh, of practicality. Uh, but then next week will be more practicality. So the first thing you're going to notice in this passage is that the agenda that the uh, Pharisees come to Jesus with. Um, they had caught up to Jesus. He had, he had uh, been teaching, and then he left the region, and they had caught up to him. And they were not after a true answer. They had formed and fashioned their answers here. What they were after was a setup. Now, something I've learned more and more, uh, especially over the last couple of years in developing some friendships, 
is that a traditional Jewish view, rabbinic view of uh, Scripture, of the laws, of the Torah, and uh, of, of the rest of Scripture is different than a Christian view of Scripture. Sometimes, sometimes I was always tempted to think, well, they view it the same way except just without Jesus as Messiah. And, and that's not true. Uh, Christianity, which I, I value this, but I've been pressed on this a little, a little bit more, is to view God as, as one to submit to and honor with our lives. Uh, from a Jewish perspective, especially a rabbinic perspective, God is one, and, uh, and I love this because it really just helps me understand the Old Testament a lot better, uh, God is one to argue with, um, to work it out. It's almost like this test. And, and so there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of arguing. You take the laws and they're like, okay, yeah, but what does that really mean? And let's argue and, and, and wrestle this out. Um, and, uh, and some of these laws are not necessarily fixed in stone. And so you will have traditional and more conservative views of Scripture that argue a certain way, and you will have more progressive views of Scripture that will argue another way, right? Sound familiar? Yeah. Um, and what we will find, and I probably can find it a lot of in the same ways that, that it breaks down in the American church, in, in, in the Christian church today, is that Jesus does not fit nice or neatly into either one of those camps. Um, so two of the more prominent rabbis of this day, of Jesus' day, uh, one is still fairly prominent in our day, uh, were Shammai and Hillel. And their, their biggest argument was over the argument of this interpretation of the Mosaic Law on the issue of divorce. Uh, culture in the ancient Near East, it, all over, was extremely patriarchal. So understand that all of these arguments that they are talking about specifically uh, are never really about women divorcing men. They are always about men divorcing women. Okay? Um, what grounds could a man divorce his wife? Deuteronomy 24.1, this is the one that, that is, is being kind of fleshed out in this argument ongoing that they're trying to trap Jesus in. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And so the debate is over what exactly that word indecency means. Shammai held a very traditional view. There was an allowance for divorce, but it was very strict. It was only in the case of infidelity. Hillel, on the other hand, who is still very, very popular today, uh, held that the biblical laws were incredibly strict. They were just way too idealistic and therefore unrealistic, and we should loosen those a bit. He had been heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman world of that day, uh, and uh, the Greco-Roman world was far more... Uh, 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 about pleasure. It was far more hedonistic. And uh, for Hillel, a man could divorce his wife for a whole number of reasons. Um, if, if dinner was bad, if the chicken was dry, uh, if she had put on some weight, right? That word indecency does some heavy lifting <laughs> in that passage. There's an old saying, what the school of Shammai binds the school of Hillel looses. Uh, and in an effort to kind of demonstrate some grace and understanding, Hillel tried to loosen up 
a whole lot of that. And the way that they were trying to catch Jesus in this is if Jesus agrees with the school of Hillel, he is going to gain some popularity with the crowds, but he will immediately enter the cancel culture of the right. Right? The Pharisees would immediately cancel him because they did not legislate that way. The different, the different religious uh, groups would, uh, if he answered it for anything other than infidelity, um, then they would be able to outright uh, cast him out and cancel him pretty quickly. On the other side, if he agrees with the school of Shammai and the traditional view, um, he may avoid the label of heretic or liberal Marxist, but he will also lose a ton of favor with the gathered crowds. And so this is really a setup pitting almost an unwinnable argument for Jesus. And what Jesus does is what Jesus often does, is he gives us a view of something that neither fits into this hardcore rule-following way, nor this hardcore just, just, hey, you know what, life's hard, just do what, what you need to do type of way. He paints marriage and really all of existence in an entirely different way. And his response is to look at the creation of marriage uh, while acknowledging the rebellion in Genesis 3 uh, that has affected everything. And, and in giving us this creation view of, of marriage, he helps us see that, which they knew, uh, but also in this approach to marriage, this is really asking the wrong question. So, Jesus goes back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 as Jesus did, um, while also acknowledging, uh, the, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, but while also acknowledging the hardness of heart that takes place that Moses refers to, uh, and how do we ask better questions. Um, and so, really, what, what, what Moses gives us in Genesis 2 and what Jesus refers to, let me read you the two passages. Jesus talks about, uh, Moses talks about marriage. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And yet, uh, we'll get to this in a second, <laughs> chapter, two, uh, chapter 3. Um, so that's going to be our breakdown. But the first thing you need to understand before we get into that, this, this idea of uh, leaving father and mother, holding fast, and the two becoming one flesh. But before we get there, what we need to understand is marriage was designed by God. This is a biblical concept. It was God's idea. There is no natural cause for marriage. Um, marriage is, in and of itself, a religious term. Okay, so if somebody says, I want to get married, but I don't want to have a religious ceremony, then I'm like, well, then you don't want to get married. That is a religious ceremony. You can't, I mean, we've taken the word and we've made it to mean whatever we want it to mean. That's what we do with words. That's what we do with words like justice and uh, good uh, and right. We, we do that. Um, but uh, marriage in and of itself is a religious term. Uh, and, and it's kind of abused on both sides. Evangelicalism, for our fault, we have almost made marriage salvific, right? Like you are not fully Christian until you're married or unless you're married. 
Um, it, it is kind of this, you do this and then uh, you must be this. It's, it's part of being a Christian. Uh, and that, that needs to be addressed. We've put somewhat of an overemphasis on marriage. From a progressive view, um, also very confusing. Marriage is either an antiquated sexist institution that suggests this religious, this ridiculous, coerced idea of monogamy that should be done away with while simultaneously being a human right that everyone deserves the right to. Um, and most of that flows from the governmental implications, not from biblical implications. Okay? So, the Bible does not paint marriage as essential to salvation. Jesus himself, Paul, single, many people in the Bible are single, but it is also way out of touch with some of the legal ramifications that we have in our day of the ways that we often define marriage, insurance purposes, visitation rights, uh, uh, inheritance, things like that. So, what we see in Genesis 1, first, marriage is God's idea, and He tells us that Adam and Eve were created male and female. They did not despise or hate themselves or their own gender, uh, nor did they hate or despise each other, but they were both created good in the image of God. One is not lesser than the other. We see in Genesis 1, they are both created to bear the image of God equally, uh, and we see in Genesis 2 that they bear that image of God uniquely and different. Um, and they were designed to work together, that together they bore the image of God. Now, here again, this doesn't mean that every person has to be married, but it does mean that male and female do work together to fully bear the image of God, and it's good. Um, the first thing in all of creation that God says is not good, Genesis 2.18. Anybody know? It's not good that man should be alone. Loneliness is not part of God's design. God is communal. He's Trinitarian. And so he says in verse 19, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the term helper is not in any way lesser. God refers to himself as a helper in Genesis 54 and again in Hebrews they are created equal but unique, and they work in harmony with one another. Jesus answers the Pharisees' set-up question with this call to creation. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, will hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, almost every wedding ceremony that I do, I, I, I will break this down a lot quicker than I will for you this morning. Um, and so we're going to walk through this, but it's important to know as we do um, that uh, that uh, again, the two business uh, marriage is not a business transaction, as it is in, it, throughout history and many of the world today. The Bible will make this distinction, um, and and yet marriage is also not that that may not be a corrective here in our culture, but it is a corrective in some cultures, even still to this day, but. But also, marriage is not finding the soulmate that will complete you and make you happy for the rest of your life. Um, your spouse cannot be the Messiah, ever. And so that is impossible. 
Uh, and that is not what marriage is. Ma- marriage is a radical commitment to another person that God uses to conform us to the image of Jesus. There's a book, um, I've never actually read the book. I've never even cracked the cover because I don't need to. Uh, the, the subtitle of the book is, What If God's Design for Marriage Was to Make You Holy and Not Happy? And I'm like, got it. I don't need to read another page. You spoiled it right there, man. Um, when I, if I ever get that part figured out, then I can open that book up. But I'm like, I'm still working on the title on the book cover. Uh, so don't give everything away on the book cover if you ever write a book. Um, so to leave, to hold fast, and to become one. Uh, the Bible says leave. It's inter- interesting that the Scripture says that it's a man should leave his father and mother. Uh, here again, this is not so much in our culture, but in every uh, near and Middle Eastern culture, almost everyone in, in ancient history, um, it was a given that the wife would leave her family. What was not a given was the idea that the man would leave his. In fact, uh, do you know who the boss of the household was in most ancient Eastern cultures? The Mog, the mother of the groom. She ran the roost. You bide your time, and then you get to call the shots. And oftentimes, the spouse, the wife would come into that family and be subject to the mother of the groom. And so it wasn't necessarily, did I get a good husband? It's, did I get a good mother-in-law? She could make my life miserable. Not unlike, totally unlike today. But uh, what Scripture says is that the man leaves his father and mother. This is, it forms an entirely new identity that is one together. That together, this is part of your Uh, your new identity. Marriage is not designed as a business transaction. Uh, It is a totally new identity. Adam and Eve were designed um, to work together, and picture this, with no envy or jealousy or manipulation or neglect or abuse of authority, any of those things. They were designed to work together in, in perfect harmony. And it was never, well, why do I have to do this and you get to do that? Or I guess I have to do everything around here. Or I do my part and you don't, why don't you do your part? They work together in harmony. That's how they were designed to be. In Genesis 3, sin is so perfect and brilliant that it turns this, working together in perfect harmony, into this. Um... Genesis 3.16, they were supposed to work together. They were before each other naked without shame. Genesis 3.16, part of the curse, part of the fallout from the rebellion, your desire will be for your husband, for his position, and he will rule over you. Both of those things are results of the fall. Neither of those two things existed before our rebellion, before sin entered the world. Um... Let me jump forward. This is why there's no way we're going to get through this. I'm, I'm working, hopefully getting through this first sermon today. Uh, when you jump forward to Ephesians 5, Paul gives instructions to the wife and the husband. Uh, it's a very famous passage in Scripture that nobody likes, out of, uh, especially because it's always used out of context. It's one where Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as, as to the Lord, right? 
Um, everybody heard somebody complain about that? Yeah. Um, that needs a better context. Submission is not just coercion and do what I say. Submission, submission actually comes from a position of authority and trust, uh, a, a power and trust. Um, but at the same time, throughout history, oftentimes we hear that hammered on, well, women need, just need to submit, and men seem to be like, you, listen, you just do your thing, because life's hard for you as a man. You do your thing, and it's the wife's job to submit. There are three verses that hit that wife's submit. There are nine verses that talk about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so if a husband is not loving his wife in a nurturing and encouraging way that is giving his life up for her, then, then we don't need to worry about this wife submit to your husband's peace. Husbands need the corrective. Love and give up your wife for her. Give, give up your life for her. Um, the way Jesus loved the church. That part of Scripture needs just as much attention. That it is two people turned toward the other, loving for the sake of the other. This new identity, this is one where both husband and wife make a covenant before God that they will help each other and seek the best for one another. That it's not what's in this for me, but what, how am I in this for you? That they will, in sickness and in health, agree to help each other become the best husband or wife, man or woman, father or mother, worker, citizen, image bearer of Jesus that they can possibly become. That means good and encouraging conversations, and sometimes that means hard and dissenting conversations. But it is not for, primarily for our personal happiness. But I will say this, I will say this, general rule of thumb, this is not, obviously this is not a complete across the board, if you are committed to helping your spouse become the best that they can possibly be and a constant encouragement for them, the chances of personal happiness go way up. Okay? It's not a guarantee. It's not an A plus B equals C. But it, but it is a matter of proverbial wisdom. Um, so, the Bible says, uh, leave to form a new, new identity. Then it says to hold fast. This is a sense of permanence. Uh, this is another aspect that the Pharisees are asking about. Jesus acknowledges an allowance uh, for divorce, but it's not just for any reason. And it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not, well, this is harder than I thought. I'd rather not do it. It's meant as a last line of defense. Moses instituted this certificate of divorce. We've talked about this before because men were absolutely abusing the system. It was a patriarchal system, and men could leave their wife literally for any reason. And so what, Paul, what Moses is saying is, we have to slow this down because, it's, because women have no means of, of employment. Women have no means of, uh, of, uh, of gain at all. And if a man just decides because the chicken is overcooked or whatever else to, to put her out... So Moses is like, all right, uh, you got to get a certificate of, of divorce. You have to go before some religious magistrate and have at least some valid excuse on why you're doing this. His, his hope was to put a stop in there somewhere because this was getting rampant. And Jesus said, Moses does that because of your hardness of heart. It's not like Moses is questioning or subverting the very purpose or meaning of 
marriage. Um, I graduated from a small Baptist school in southwest Missouri, and um, uh, one time during intramural basketball, we were playing intramural basketball, and a friend of mine uh, was receiving a pass, and he got that hit, you know, where you hear the finger pop, like where you jam the thumb, and everybody on the floor cringes, and some of you are cringing now. And, and so my friend, he, you could hear it. We all heard it. And he let fly with an obscenity. And the ref immediately blew the whistle and called the technical foul on him. Baptist schools, man, no grace whatsoever. And my friend almost immediately went from sheer agonizing grief and pain to, no, 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 you can cuss if, 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 you're, if there's an injury. It's in the rules. Like, it was amazing. He was better. It's like if you have kids and they feel sick and you're like, well, I guess you can't go play with your friends and all of a sudden they're healed. Yeah. It was amazing. The law of Moses, what Jesus says here, these are not meant to be loopholes. These are not meant to be ways out if it's not the way you expected. They're meant to be last resorts. What God designed, the way God designed us to look at marriage is as a holistic, lifelong commitment. In our day, um, most of the time we make this decision based on hormones and feelings, pheromones and feelings, that these things are rushing to our brains and we're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to love this person forever. Let me tell you something. Um, probably not. I mean, decision love, yes, but you are not going to feel those pheromones forever. Wears off, in our case, very, very quickly. Uh, we, first year of marriage, it wore off. Um, I'll look more at that next week because i got to get permission. Um, three to four years is an average time of when that wears off. And then again, at nine to ten years, uh, there's a part of reality that sets in where you're like, oh, till death do us part. How soon could that happen? Um, marriage is hard work. It's not about falling out of love. That's just not a valid biblical excuse. Um, love is a decision that wakes up every morning and says, whether I feel it or not, I am going to be for this person. And I, if we did honest marriage ceremonies, which sometimes I do and I get looks, uh, but we would take vows that would probably look like this. This is the person that will disappoint you more than anybody else for the rest of your life. Will you, right? Um, or or uh, this is the person who will have the greatest access to hurt you in some of the most vulnerable places that you might not even be aware of yet because you're going to give them access to that painful stuff. So, I know none of you are like, he's not doing my marriage ceremony. Um, and yet, my wife was helpful. She's like, you got to put something redemptive in there, honey. Uh, and yet, in biblical marriage, even through hurt and pain, it comes with this, the, the, the possibilities of being known, of all that junk being known about you and, and still being loved. 
It comes with growing in trust, having to grow in trust. And even within the marriage ceremony, it comes with somebody else that is making that same commitment to be just as committed to your crap as you are to theirs. If you go to any wedding and you listen to the vows, every one of them will talk about a time in the future that will a time in the future uh, that could be good or it could be bad. It may be a time of plenty or it may be a time of poverty. And we're planning for that, and the vows that we're taking on the days of wedding say, I will love you even then. I'm committed to you even then. Now, quickly, this permanence, the age-old question, especially when it comes to the passage that we talked about, about women submitting and abuse and all that stuff. Uh, what if a man is abusing her, his wife? Or vice versa. Um, uh, what if a spouse is abusing? Uh, is abusing the, the the stereotypical. What if a man is abusing his wife? Uh, we're going to get more into practical stuff next week. But um, the role of the woman is helper. And too many times people have said, "Well, you're supposed to be submitted to him. You go back." And listen, I want to tell you that I don't believe that that is true. If you are a helper to your husband and to your marriage for that to be the best it can be, then you encourage your spouse when they are doing well. And if they are not doing well, you oppose them for their good. And so if a husband is abusing his wife, the wife calls the police in the hopes that time in a cell will wake him up because that's not good for you, it's not good for him, and it's certainly not good for your marriage. That's what it is to be a helper. But to fight for the posture of your heart that you could actually still be for them. That said... The compounding effects of sin, there are times and there are allowances that call for and mandate firm boundaries and, and protection. And, and that's an unfortunate grievance, not just in our day, but in every day. Does that help? Does that give some clarity to a much maligned question? All right. So marriage is to hold fast. It is designed to be permanent. Um, finally, gosh, and we're already late. Do I open this up? We're going to open it up. Uh, marriage is intimate, so the Bible says that the two become one. Uh, this is the sexual union. Marriage, this is both being naked and not ashamed, which is spiritually, emotionally, and physically. The Hebrew word here is, is literally the mingling of souls. Um, so let's open this up uh, and, and, and get into some of this. Um, Marriage tells us that, uh, sorry, Scripture tells us that sex is good. Scripture, does, scripture also tells us that sex is not ultimate. It is not essential for living in life, contrary to cultural view. Sex is very, very, very powerful for good and for bad. We see it abused and manipulated in, uh, in Scripture, post-Genesis 3, we also have an entire book written about it in the, uh, in, by Solomon, uh, The Beauty and Profound Joy. We see just as many warnings of the danger of the power of sex as we see the beauty of the power of sex in Scripture. Um, sex can ruin marriages. Sex can help save marriages. Culturally, we have given sex both too much power and yet not enough. Um, there's no such thing as just sex. This is what, I mean, this is what's being talked about here. The mingling of souls is never just 
sex. Scripture gives a very clear design for sex, that it is designed to flourish exclusively in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Um, Scripture shows us every situation where that is abused, and the thing you need to know is every time that happens, Scripture points out, it doesn't turn out well. And that said, the gospel does give us a beautiful view of redemption that demonstrates radical grace for the wounder and the wounded in order that anyone's heart might be changed to walk and sometimes limp together to become more and more like Jesus. Let me give you the great, the great leveling of the playing field uh, when it comes to any, anywhere. Uh, it, this is not progressive, nor is it nor is it traditional. Um, there is not one person in existence, apart from Jesus, uh, who has ever been born and lived with a pure biblical sex ethic. Okay? No person in existence, to my knowledge, I haven't done formal research on this, I'm making a pretty good guess, has been born with one pure desire, lived out, practiced in, for one woman, one man, one lifetime, regardless of what the, the distortions of those are, whether it's same-sex, opposite-sex attraction, no person in the history of man has been born and lived out a pure biblical sex ethic uh, with our desires. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about creation. We talked about God's image-bearingness. And, and one of the things that we talked about in that, however, is our ability to resist our appetites when in response to trusting God, that we are not simply as, we're not simply animals. I, this isn't in my notes, this is when I get in trouble. Um, but my wife and I, she taught junior high when I was in seminary, and we went and we, we uh, chaperoned a junior high dance, uh, and they played at this dance twice. The song with the lyric, and you've probably heard it, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. Let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. They played that song twice, junior high dance. I had theological differences with that song and practical differences. We're not just like mammals. We have the ability, the God-given ability to resist those appetites and trust God for something better. Wherever those appetites might be, whether those appetites change or not, we have the ability, we have been given with the help of the Holy Spirit, the ability to resist those. Here's the problem is sometimes we go, well, yeah, but in New Testament times, they were all like strict and upright and, and you know, walking around like this. They were all holy anyway. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. They make us look like Puritans in a lot of ways. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, now, there was a, a, a Jewish view that fell in line more with Scripture, more with the traditional view when it came to the sex ethic. That was the lineage of what Moses had set up. But you're also talking about the Greco-Roman world, and you're talking about uh, Gentile culture, and they were not. It was common among the, um, let's say, Gentiles had, they had uh, temples and temple prostitutes. 
Uh, in fact, it was often not seen as, as infidelity if you went to a temple prostitute. It was an act of worship um, among some of the pagan gods. Uh, it was common among Roman feasts and festivals to include various sexual rituals. Uh, it was not uncommon for two men or more to have long-standing sexual relationships. And yet, followers of Jesus, Jew and Gentile, were known and in fact were ostracized for their resistance to these things, for their commitments to celibacy, for their abstinence. In fact, when Peter talks about, uh, Peter even talks about them like uh, followers of Jesus facing, facing um, measures of uh, uh, persecution and being ostracized for not going to the Roman sex festivals. They were seen as weird and outcasts. Not because it was culturally beneficial. It was actually culturally ostracizing. The... Um, what changed was the way that they saw their purpose in the world. All of that shifted, all of that changed when people began to follow Jesus. It wasn't because they were shamed into it by the conservative uh, rabbis, uh, but they had also stopped believing the enabling of the progressives, that progressives offered them, that genuine hope and freedom uh, could be found in these means and not by who God uh, had shaped them to be and what he had called them to submit to. Biblical sex ethic has never aligned with culture, ever. Never has. And yet, the church throughout history has also been the place where any and every sexual brokenness or woundedness has been welcomed and loved. Which is all of us regardless of how culturally acceptable our struggle with sexual sin might be. Temptations, internal desires, they can be confessed, they can be known, um, and, and they can be the ones that fall outside the biblical practices can be resisted. So quickly, if you're single, you will most likely have sexual desires and thoughts. That, that's probably not surprising to you. Um, Find a place, find a person that you can be able to confess those things and be honest. Don't try to put a front on of your biblical righteousness to appear to everybody else while temptations and hurtful things remain in, hidden in practice because you don't want to bring those to the church because everybody would be like, oh, I can't believe you struggled with sexual sin. Find a place, and if somebody heaps shame on you for struggling with a... Uh, sexual sin, and for bringing that and trusting them, then shame on them. Um, if you wrestle with uh, same-sex attraction, with lustful thoughts, with some, uh, there there are uh, tremendous resources available on this. Um, spiritual friendship, uh, Revoice. There are some tremendous uh, resources that are available on that. Whether or not those desires ever change is, is really not the point. The point is, just like anyone and everyone else, that we are a community of people designed to help each of us 
resist those temptations. Remaining holy and fully committed to Jesus, that when the temptation comes, that we're called to resist those. And we will stumble along, as we all do, but we're called to be for one another. Struggling together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Also, let me help you understand, if you are not married, uh, marriage does not solve lust. Shout that from the rooftops. Marriage does not solve sexual temptation. It just doesn't. If you're married and you're struggling with these issues, either either as a victim of some of these issues or as as a perpetrator... Don't let that continue in the darkness. Confess, be known, and and prayerfully there are people that can enter into this relationship with you. If you want resources in that, I have those as well to help fight for you and be your cheerleader. And sometimes your spouse can do that. Sometimes they just can't. That's too much. And it's it's never a weight that your spouse should bear alone. Um, If you've been wounded or hurt by sexual abuse, I want you to know that there is healing, and I don't mean healing like you'll just walk around like this and never feel it again. It's hard and it's hurtful, um, but there is healing. If the cycle doesn't have to continue, if you've been hurt by sexual uh, stuff and then are acting out in that way, or if it's just a deep wound in you, um, the gospel can be a refuge for you as well, and the church should be a place to experience redemption, protection, and, and healing and forgiveness. Um, None of this subverts issues of justice. I want to say that. Uh, if somebody comes to you and confesses something that is, has been, uh, is against the law, this does not, forgiveness does not subvert justice, but it can put us on a path of redemption. In fact, redemption longs for justice, even if we are the ones that have to pay that price. We'll hit this more next week, but let me say this as well. Sex can be beautiful and wonderful accountability and joy within marriage. When it's done unto the Lord, this is not me trying to Jesus juke uh, sex. It, it takes the way that God designed this to work. It takes pursuit. It takes receptivity. It takes preparation. It takes effort. If we are pursuing sex for the good of marriage and the good of our spouse, not just for self-gratification, it can be a wonderful, powerful, and uniting thing in marriage. Okay, I probably left millions of things out. Hopefully I didn't raise more questions than I, than I asked, but I did in the Facebook post. I said, if you have questions, please don't presume, ask. If you want to know more or if you want more, there's some, uh, uh, there are various resources for, for all of these things that can be really, really helpful. Let's finish here. The creation pattern of marriage to leave and form a new identity, which is hard. It's good, it's hard. It is to hold fast in a covenant that is not to be easily discarded or cast aside, which at times is hard. (laughs) It can be very, very helpful in securing as well, but it's also hard. And marriage is brings two to become one flesh, physically, emotionally, spiritually naked and without shame. We live in a culture that prompts our hearts and our minds often to first ask questions about our satisfaction, our happiness, our fulfillment. 
We're faced not only with our sinful nature, but also every commercial, every advertisement, every product screams to our souls and our desires, this is for you. This will make you happy. This will give you what you need. We've been trained to look at everything from the standpoint of what's in this for me. Even church, even religion of Christianity, even God himself, we've been trained to look at everything from what's in this for me. And that, listen, I get it. I get it. It's hard. It makes things harder. If you feel like, well, I'm the only one committing to this, and I'm the, but my spouse is not doing the, the work, man, A, maybe let your spouse know if they, if they don't know, but how do you help them? And that's a hard question. How do I help you do the work? I want to give ample grace while also not cheapening what God designed. Jesus, when looking at marriage, when looking at a relationship, when looking at the idea of love, Jesus fundamentally changes the entire purpose of our existence, not just conservative or progressive. He changes the very question that we asked. We are compelled by a fierce and redemptive and sacrificial love to be able to enjoy and resist temptation, to give and receive in humility and grace and, and, and sacrificial love. To know that trusting Jesus is knowing that there's life beyond this life. So I don't need to feel trapped in a lie that this world is all we have and I better, if I'm, I don't want to be stuck in this for the rest of my existence. That today does not spell every day that there is hope for redemption renewal even within this world and yet radical grace and forgiveness that says I don't have to fake my external righteousness and hide things that destroy me and look down in judgment toward others. Marriage is God designed it's a God-designed relationship where all of this is tested and pressed and refined to make us holy and hopefully, sometimes, maybe even more often than not, happy as well. But to play its role in conforming us to the image of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look more at the practical but this week, know that the calling to marriage is good and it is hard. And we have the hope and the help of the Holy Spirit that this kind of sacrificial love has demonstrated the potential to overcome even the hardest and the darkest of scenarios, even, even the possibility of overcoming betrayal. It's something that can and has turned our weeping into dancing. Um, Yeah, I really, my, my, I want to just like do a Q&A now in all the areas. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? But um, this is one of the ways, the calling of marriage, the church, this is, these are the ways that God works out in us and through us the ways that Christ has loved us. It's created good. The rebellion has affected everything. And yet we are given in Christ a hope that things can be ultimately will be redeemed. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, 
that you have loved your bride, that you have demonstrated long, drawn-out, hard love that doesn't just fix us, but is long-suffering that is present with us. Um, you know what it is to experience deep joy of marriage and, uh, and that intimacy and union, and you know what it is to be betrayed. So nowhere in these are we alone. Give grace to hearts that need grace this morning. Um, give conviction to hearts that need conviction. Give joy and, a, and deep gratitude in hearts that need to experience joy and deep gratitude this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.